Hello, this is the SRS Podcast, which we're proud to announce is now in iTunes. If you're listening for the first time, welcome along. I'm Chris Mayswright, Sound on Sound News Editor, and I'm joined by Hugh Robjohns. Hello. And Paul White. Hello. Technical Editor and Editor-in-Chief of the magazine. This month we'll be answering reader questions, as we always do on the podcast. We'll have a rundown of the latest news, and we talk about choosing an audio interface, which is the cover feature for the September issue of the magazine. We also hear from Phil Ward, who's written a fascinating article about the Yamaha Aniston Studio Monitor, which charts the rise and, well, the rise of this technically unremarkable product to the control rooms of the greatest studios in the world. We'll also catch up with the lucky winner of the £20,000 bundle of studio kit that was a prize for the competition we ran back at the Limbs show in June. But now let's go over to Chris for some more news. Mojave Audio have released a FET version of their MA200 large diaphragm tube mic called the MA201. Being a FET mic and therefore using solid state circuitry, the mic apparently has a faster transient response and has a bit more of a presence peak compared to its tube driven sibling. It costs just under $700 in the US and will retail in the UK for about £400. Visit mojaveaudio.com for more. You can now buy Reason and its refills for less. Developers of the platform Propellerhead have announced three bundles of their software at new low prices. The first of the bundles, Reason Premium Edition, gives you Reason plus all of the hyper-sampled virtual instrument libraries. That's drum kits, pianos, Abbey Road keyboards and electric bass. All for £399 in the UK or $600 in the US. Studio Combo comprises all four sample libraries for £199 or $300 and the Rhythm Combo gives you the drum kits and electric bass libraries for just £119 or $150. You'll find them at your nearest Propellerhead retailer. There's a new subwoofer from loudspeaker manufacturers KRK. It's called the KRK-10S and it's a replacement for the RP-10. New features include a ground lift switch and a bypass foot switch and the 225 watt amp has been tuned to produce less distortion at high levels. Also, there's a front grille, which will prevent the cone being damaged if the sub is kicked or knocked. It costs $400, so it should cost between £200 and £250 in the UK. Finally, Behringer have unveiled a new MIDI controller called the UMA25S. It's got a two-octave keyboard and eight rotary controls, and also has a stereo audio interface built in. It comes bundled with door software, so you can get recording straight away, but perhaps the best thing about it is its price. It's only £80 in the UK, or $189 in the US. Visit Behringer.com for more information. You can find up-to-the-minute reports on the news pages of our website at soundonsound.com forward slash news. If you have an RSS-compatible browser, you can subscribe to the SOS feed, so any news stories get sent directly to you. This is the part of the podcast where we try to answer your questions. So if you'd like to have a question answered by us, drop an email to soundadvice, all as one word, at soundonsound.com. So the first question this month came from the Sound on Sound forum, and it is, does it matter where you put the mic on a multi-speaker guitar cabinet? What do you think, Paul? Well, essentially, the mic techniques are the same as if you were micing up a speaker cabinet with a single speaker in it, because the mic can only really concentrate on any one at a time. So the trick is to find out the best-sounding one. So if your hearing will stand it, uh, check around the four speakers, see if any of them rattle, see if any have a sweeter tone, try and pick the best, avoid any that are damaged, and then you're back to the, uh, the same situation that you would be with a single speaker, which is um, moving the microphone between the centre of the cone and the edge to get the correct tonality. The sound tends to warm up as you move towards the edge. It's a bit more hard and in your face towards the middle. And you can also get some useful variation by moving the mic um, forwards and backwards 
at its closest it can be touching the speaker grill and, and at its furthest it can be really as far as you like but in, in practice uh, a couple of feet would be fine it's not often great to move it a long way back unless you've got a really good sounding room which uh, would probably be a, a pro studio rather than a bedroom now you've done a few of these who what do you uh, think you could add to that well, I'll go with you. You've, you've got to go around and listen to the different speakers. It's surprising sometimes how much they can vary in tonality as you go across. Some may have been broken and replaced and could even be a different model of, of speaker, so they can sound quite different. And the other thing is, if you're going for the edge sound, which I quite like in most cases, go for the outside edge, not the inside edge, because as you get towards the inside, of course, if it's a 4x12, you're going to start hearing the next speaker to it, uh, and you'll get some kind of phase cancellation and colouring that way. So try and go to the outside edges. Yeah, you'll also find that there's a slight difference between miking uh, the top speaker in a 4x12 and the bottom one because, of course, you get reflections from the floor and the further away you move the mic from the cabinet, the stronger those reflections become in contrast to the direct sound and you get some kind of a comb filtering effect which um, colours the sound. So if you change the distance between the mic and the floor, as you must do when you're going towards the top speaker, you're going to change the tone as well. So it's an artistic decision as much as anything. Yeah, so the answer is yes, it does matter and you need to experiment to find out what sounds best. Would there be any point in putting two microphones on a four-speaker cabinet? Not at the same distance, I'd say, um, because that's inviting all kinds of phase problems. If you want to mic it up with two mics, I'd put them at radically different distances, really, which is going to give you a more useful coloration. Sure. And you can vary the the mics as well. I mean, a lot of people would use something like a Dynamic 57 or something up really close, and then something like a small diaphragm condenser further out. Um, and you get different tonalities that way too, which can be useful. Mm. The only time I would use two mics close up, I think, is when there were very different mics, such as a, a 57 and a ribbon mic. Take great care to get them at exactly the same distance so you don't get any phase cancellation, and then you can balance the tonality between the two because you will find they sound very different. Sound advice. Steve Baston from Wolverhampton asks, I bought an old ribbon mic and I used it as a room mic in front of a drum kit about six feet away. Will this do any damage? It still works after one drum session, but I want to know whether prolonged exposure to high SPLs will do long-term damage. High SPLs, probably not. Ribbons only tend to suffer from direct air blasts. It's a mechanical issue that you've got a problem with. Uh, If you're six feet away from a drum kit, I wouldn't be too worried about it. I mean, people use ribbons as overheads on kits quite a lot. It's not really a problem. Um, the only way, the, the easiest way to, to find out whether you're going to have a problem or not is actually to put your hand where you're likely to put the mic and see if you can feel a breeze on it. If you're getting close to the kick drum, you'll start feeling that air movement on your hand, and that's a bad sign for a ribbon mic. If you're worried, you could put a, a pop screen in front of it. Absolutely, yeah, and a lot of people will angle the mic. If you turn the mic slightly sideways, um, you've then got the, the ribbon itself on a kind of oblique angle to the airflow, and that helps to save it if you're in a slightly dodgy position. I think if it's an old ribbon mic, you're far more likely to damage it by handling it than actually using it. So the thing to do is put it away when you finish using it. Be very careful. Don't drop it because it probably won't come back again. Yeah, leaving ribbon mics lying around is is always a bad thing for them because the magnets in them are so powerful, they kind of attract any bit of metal swarf that are lying around. Um, And it's surprising sometimes what they can suck in. And once you get metal in amongst the uh, motor assembly, it'll short out and that'll be the end of that. So don't leave them lying around. Always put them away when you finish with them. Sound advice. So Mark Philpotts in Canada asks, how loud is a vocalist in terms of SPL? Well, the answer to that, of course, is this loud! <laughs> Next question. Um, that's one of those how long is a piece of string type questions, isn't it? Because different vocalists will vary with their volume depending on what they're doing. And how close they are to the mic. How close they are to the mic and how well trained they are. A classical opera singer... Um, has a really powerful diaphragm and knows how to use their voice properly and can generate astonishing sound levels. What are we talking about? Sort of one metre? 
Oh, put me on the spot. Well, certainly in excess of 100 dB. Yeah, I was going to say 105, 110 dB, probably maybe even a bit more with a, with a classically trained opera singer. Compared to a trombone or something, where do they stand? Uh, a brass instrument like a trombone can get up, they're probably the loudest instrument in the orchestra, actually, they can get up to around 130, 135 at a metre without too much trouble if they're really blown hard. I suppose what this question's really asking is, um, do you need to choose a particular microphone for a particularly loud singer? And a lot of today's large diaphragm mics will handle in excess of 135 dBs. If it still distorts, uh, then put the pad switch in. Use a model with a pad switch. Yeah, or but, move it a bit further away, of course. Or move it further away, yeah. But don't put the pad switch in unless you actually need it, because it will worsen the signal-to-noise ratio. This is true. If you go to the website, microphone-data.com, um, there's figures there for all the microphones, including their SPL figures, and uh, it gives you a good idea of how they compare. Sound, sound advice. The cover feature in the September issue of Sound on Sound, which is out now, is all about choosing an audio interface. Paul, what would you suggest to someone who's just about to purchase a new audio interface? Well, probably the first thing they should do is read that article by Martin Walker on how to choose an interface. But uh, essentially it comes down to your requirements. How many things do you need to record at the same time? Do you need to have mic inputs on there? And if so, do they need phantom power? Because all these things are considerations. Do you have MIDI keyboards? In which case, maybe you should be choosing an interface that also has a MIDI socket on the back. Otherwise, um, you're going to be relying on a separate MIDI interface or on a keyboard with a USB interface to go with it. Technical spec is also important, but there's no point buying the best quality prism converters or whatever else if the rest of your studio is really entry-level with cheap microphones and it's in a bedroom with the dog barking next door. So consider the weakest link in the chain thing and, and buy something that's got a good audio spec but not too esoteric unless you can justify that. Also, connectivity. Should it connect via USB or Firewire? Well... Maybe that depends on what your computer offers. Most of the designers of these devices tell us that FireWire is easier to design for because the timing issues are less of a problem. But uh, in my experience, most of the smaller USB interfaces also work perfectly well. Another factor you might want to consider is whether you need to have direct latency-free monitoring. Some people arrange this with a mixer or a monitor controller, but a lot of these interfaces now have it built in so that you can actually hear your vocals live or your guitar live as you're recording it as opposed to hearing it after it's made a trip through the computer and come back out a few milliseconds later, which some players find off-putting. What about outputs? Why are there so many outputs on some of these sound cards? The designers tend to give you, in most cases, as many outputs as you have inputs. And, of course, if you're mixing inside the box, you probably only need the, the two outputs. Uh, for a basic setup. However, you can use external hardware, in which case you want to plumb that into the system via the spare inputs and outputs on your interface. So if you want to use, for example, uh, a separate reverb unit because it's better than what you have uh, in your plugins, then you'll need extra I.O. for that. Uh, Then there's the generation of person who wants to mix outside the box in some kind of analogue mixer, in which case you need as many analogue outputs as you can get. So there are lots of considerations. It all comes back to analysing the way that you want to work, how many things that you're likely to record at the same time, and how you want to mix. And then you can kind of work backwards. If you've got a limited budget, then it's probably sensible to buy a better quality interface with fewer inputs than a cheap one with lots of inputs, providing you don't need those lots of inputs. Another article you'll find in the September issue of the magazine is all about the Yamaha NS10 near-field monitor. Love them or hate them, we've probably all heard them, and you've certainly all seen them in photographs from big studios. So here's the author and accomplished lead speaker designer, Phil Ward, to tell you what to expect in this article. Hello, 
I'm Phil Ward, and I've spent quite a bit of time recently researching the technical performance and history of the venerable old Yamaha NS10 near-field monitor. You can read some of the results of my efforts in the September issue. The NS10 is an unusual product because of its remarkable longevity and popularity, despite the fact that it's both loved and hated. It was launched as a hi-fi speaker in the late 70s, and while it faded quickly towards obscurity in that market, a fortunate set of circumstances saw it reborn as one of the first near-field monitors. By the late 80s, it had become an industry standard, and even now, despite intense commercial competition in the near-field monitor market, its iconic white cones can be seen in probably the majority of professional music studios. As you'll read in the magazine, there's two fundamental reasons for the NS10 phenomenon. Firstly, it fortuitously arrived at a time when the business of recording music was going through major change. Freelance engineer producers were taking over from in-house studio staff, and they each had some favourite items of hardware. Secondly, the NS10, probably more by luck than judgement, has some technical characteristics that make it very well suited to the near-field monitoring role. In the magazine article, I examine both of these reasons in depth, and also offer up some explanation of why the NS10 sometimes provokes such profound disagreement among those who find themselves using it professionally. Perhaps the real mystery of the NS10, however, is why it has been so short of effective competition. It's not as if the usual suspects of potential competitors haven't had time to come up with something. But on that question, your guess is as good as mine. This is the Sound on Sound podcast. Thanks for that, Phil. Hugh, what are your experiences with the NS10? Um, mostly good. Not my favourite speaker, but they do a certain job very well, and, and you've got to respect them for that. Um, and they are just very common, so it's a kind of universal reference that, that you can get to work with quite easily. Um, did have some entertaining experiences once with a pair of NS10s on a Studio SOS, where... Um, we had a bit of a problem with a computer. They were fed directly from a computer interface and the computer was having a bit of a software headache and decided to go into a complete HowlRound mode. And, uh, and the result of that was the most beautifully formed smoke rings from each of the tweeters of the NS10s that came horizontally towards us and then drifted gently towards the ceiling. Very impressive. Sounded very dull afterwards, though. What about you, Paul? Uh, similar thing. Um, we used to have them in a studio at a magazine I used to work for years and years ago, which is no longer with us, of course. Uh, and the same can be said of the NS10s, because every time we switched on an amplifier, if there was the slightest hint of instability during power-up, it would trash the, the tweeters. So they are quite fragile and fairly expensive to replace. But on a sonic level, they, they are an interesting speaker because they do show you aspects of your mix that some other speakers don't show you. But I wouldn't like to do a complete mix using nothing else. I like to use them as a kind of forensic microscope to look into the mix, maybe as a second reference. Absolutely, yeah. A lot of people do mix, particularly in America, I think. They, they do mix on just NS10s. But uh, I wouldn't feel comfortable with that, as you say. It's a kind of useful reference. Checking the, the balance of the, um, the bass guitar and, and the kick drum in particular, they're very good at. And for revealing the mix around the mid-range, the vocal level that kind of thing mm. if it sounds right on an ns10 it'll sound right on anything and that's the real strength to it it does but i'd still like to check with other monitors just to see what's going on in that bottom octave which the ns10 doesn't really reach absolutely you have to kind of assume that that's behaving and not eq it if you're going to mix on the ns10s Features. every month in sound on sound magazine we run competitions where you our readers can win fabulous prizes for the next three months, until the end of November, we've got a new subscribe and win competition where you can get a whole bundle of Focusrite, Novation, KRK and Ableton gear worth over £3,000. That's about $6,000 for our American friends. And Paul's got a list of what's up for grabs. Yes, there's a Focusrite liquid mix, which is their dynamic convolution processor, giving you lots of EQs and compressors. There's a Sapphire audio interface, also from Focusrite the Compounder two-channel dynamics processor, and there's also a pair of KRK VXT6 monitors. 
uh, a Novation Remote 61SL, a Novation Nocturne and a full copy of Ableton Live, complete with the orchestral instrument collection, plus a couple of extra goodies from Novation. So uh, if nothing else, it's going to keep you uh, reading manuals through those long winter nights. The competition is only open to subscribers to the magazine, but you can subscribe and enter the competition at the same time with the special signing up form, which is found on the competition page in the magazine. Otherwise, you can visit soundonsound.com, enter your subscriber pin and head to the competitions page on the website. Don't forget to enter your contact details so we can get hold of you if you're chosen as the winner. This is the Sound on Sound podcast. Talking of winners, we met up with Dean McCarthy, who won about £20,000 worth of equipment which we had up for grabs at the Lim Show back in June. So while Paul and I were busy unloading it all from the truck, Chris caught up with him to see how he was coping with all his new toys. Tell us how you got to winning the prize then. You, you obviously went to the Lim Show mm-hmm. at Excel. Yeah, I basically saw the big sound and sound set up they had right at the front of the uh, SRT entrance. So uh, saw the, all the prize and all the goodies. Thought, what's the harm? Put my name in, as you do, you know. About three or four weeks later, I think it was that long, um, Andy uh, gave me a buzz. And he just said, uh, yeah, we've, we've pulled your name out of the hat and uh, you're our winner. So, and... Uh, so I guess when uh, Paul and Hugh arrived with the van full of uh, equipment, you were quite excited then. I was, I was cleaning all morning. I was, uh, you know, sweeping the floors, all excited and just, you know, wanted everything to just go as smoothly as possible. And then Paul and Hugh arrived, and they were, you know, they uh, had a look around, and they were first of all they they kind of came into the room and had a look. Um, their major concern was the acoustics, getting them kind of in place then we started looking at the rest of the equipment like the the uh, considering the 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 main object was to build everything around the mac and the current setup you know we got the got the mac in place then we um we got all the power core stuff up and running got logic installed and then we looked at kind of the desk getting everything plugged in all the outboard and kind of just went around from there we just went in we wired everything up so you're happy yeah, it's hard not to be <laughs> that that kind of stuff. And the only thing I'm uh, slightly not happy about is uh, ha- not not being able to be in London as much as I want to. I've got to only get to spend three or four day weekends down here mixing. Anything else you want to say? Um, thank you. I mean, it's an amazing <laughs> prize. It's um, I'm you know really lucky to to be able to get my hands on it. Really, uh, really excited to be moving on now. This is the Sound on Sound. Well, that was Dean McCarthy, a very lucky man indeed. That's about all we have time for on the SOS podcast this month. Catch us next time when we'll have more tech talk, news and advice. See you then.